What God accomplishes is a change in the substance during the Mass, so that the substance is no longer bread, but is the body of Christ under the accidents of bread, under the appearance of bread. The first Christians were accused of cannibalism. Even Jesus was accused of cannibalism. That's right. Welcome to Tulsa Time with Bishop Condorla. My name's Derek Lissy, and I am your host. Bishop David, how are you doing this week? Good, good. Doing well. Um, Just got back from a really interesting bioethics conference. We'll talk about that in a future episode. We have this uh, every two years, a bioethics conference for the bishops. Uh, Usually scary, frightening. Oh, my gosh. Stuff stuff that's that's already going on or about to be going on. And... um, uh, today is, I was at St. Catherine's School this morning for Mass, and I called it Marty Lent. I think I called it Marty, Marty Lent. Lent. Today is Marty Lent. Um, Marty Gras, traditionally, but Valentine's tomorrow. So, no, I must have called it Valen Lent or something. Valent or something. <laughs> okay. I don't know. I was trying to combine Valentine's and Lent somehow. But uh, yeah, so today is that unusual day that only happens every now and then where we have uh, the Feast of, of St. Valentine fall on Ash yeah. Wednesday. So yeah, getting ready for that. I've seen lots of memes about ashes in, in the shape of a heart <laughs> on people's heads. I don't think we're going to actually do that. Yeah, let's hope not. Let's hope not. No, it is it is great. Lent is is officially here. We're we've kicked it off, and you know many people are are you know uh, setting up all their commitments or you know um, observing uh, prayer, fasting, almsgiving, etc. And I know that um, for me specifically, you know, I, I always hope to go to more daily mass every time Lent comes around. You know, ideally try to go every day, but um, but try to do that. I know many people do that. Many people do know or don't know or realize that you attend masses all over the diocese. Mm. And just from my limited experience, and we all know this from going on vacation and going to other parishes, while mass is the same worldwide, it can be different um, in many, many places. Mm-hmm. Um, and it always is is interesting. I find it interesting to go to different parishes when I can. I think I've spoken about that before, but just to see what what other parishes are like. What are, what are some of the things that You've seen out there at some of our rural parishes specifically. It's one of the things that was that was the same or similar. Mm-hmm. People asked me when I first came, "What's what? How is this similar to what you've done before?" And normally it wouldn't be. It's not. In a way, it's not similar to the life of a parish priest. Certainly not to travel around. But I was a vocation director. I was a full time vocation director in the diocese of Austin for four and a half years, and I went to all the parishes in the diocese on the weekends and preached about vocations. And I was in campus ministry, and we were doing a lot of fundraising in a big campaign to build buildings. And so I was driving to Houston and San Antonio and Dallas all the time, Austin, all around Texas, to visit with alumni and donors. Yeah. Would you always con-celebrate Masses, or would you ever just 
like, how does that work? Do you like, as a priest, I mean, you know, are you, you, mean do you always have was, to, when I was vocation director or what? When you were traveling around, oh, fundraising, yeah. going to different parishes. And well, now I wasn't going on weekends. That was just to visit people. Sure. Okay. Occasionally I celebrated mass in one place or another, usually for Aggie Catholic gatherings of some kind. Yeah. Um, but uh, more often I would be concelebrating. And when I was a vocation director, often I would go and the priest would take a weekend off. So I would do all the masses in the parish that weekend because I was going to preach at all the masses anyway. And uh, so they would take a, a weekend off. Nice. Which is, you know, as a parish priest, you appreciate being able to do that. Um here in this diocese, interestingly, we celebrate Mass, I was counting it up, in nine different languages every weekend, uh, or almost every weekend. Korean, uh, I think, is just once a month, and Tagalog also, I think, is is just once a month or so. But uh, these other languages, English, Spanish, Latin, Vietnamese, Chukis, a Micronesian language, Zomi. And uh, Arabic, our, our Maronite brothers and sisters have Arabic in their mass yeah. as well. So uh, that's something that's really interesting in a diocese as small as this one and as rural as this one, that we nonetheless have that kind of uh, different celebrations of the mass each weekend. When I go around to the parishes and I visit, say, an average of three parishes or so a weekend. Sure. Um you know, I might go from a really large parish to a really small parish. And so the, the, the experience of the Mass in very small parishes is much more kind of relaxed in a way. Uh, in very large parishes, it may be, maybe it's just because I feel more nervous in a sense when I'm in front of that big of a crowd of people. Um, and if I'm doing Mass, you know, I can only do Mass in two languages, English or Spanish. Um, so when I'm celebrating Mass in Spanish, you know, I always feel a little less comfortable than in English because Spanish is not my first language. How did how did you learning Spanish for Mass come about? Did that start at Holy Trinity in Dallas and seminary? Was that something that in the Diocese of Austin they said, you know, Father David, you need the, the bishop come to you and say, hey, Father David, you have to do this. And then or did you do it on your own? How did that come about? It's an interesting. Um, in a way, it's an interesting difference in comparison between this diocese and the one I came from. Um, and I've said to people that to me, in a way, it feels like this diocese is about uh, 20 years or so historically behind the immigration mm. curve, the 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 uh, entrance of Spanish-speaking immigrants into the diocese than it was in Texas. And by that, I mean simply that in Texas, we already, by the time I was in seminary in 1985, we already had uh, so many Spanish masses in parishes that it was incumbent on all the priests and seminarians who possibly could learn Spanish to learn Spanish. Got it. Okay. And so there was a definite expectation that if you're a seminarian of the Diocese of Austin, you're going to learn Spanish while you're in huh. seminary. And so we would take two years of Spanish while in college, like everyone does. But then we would do a full summer, eight-week summer immersion program at the end of our college years in Mexico. 
And typically, men coming back from that immersion program would have a basic conversational ability that you then begin to work on and try to, to build up by practice. Whereas here, the experience is new enough that we don't have Spanish mass in every parish, not even uh, all of, or most of the parishes. Hmm. Consequently, uh, up to now, it's been <clears throat> the case that if the guy spent a lot of effort learning Spanish in seminary, he might not be able to keep it. He might not be able to use it enough to keep it when he came out of seminary. So uh, it's only recently that we began to once again impose the idea here that all the seminarians will learn Spanish. Mm -hmm. And so if you do that, of course, you have to make provision for it. And so finding places where they can do their immersion program and uh, increasing the number of Spanish masses across the diocese so that we can reach the, the people, not, not because we need the seminarians to practice their, their Spanish or the priests, but because we have that the, the Hispanic presence within the diocese is now spread out enough that almost all of our parishes could have a Spanish mass and have people come. Yeah. It's really neat that, you know, you can experience mass in so many languages, so many different places and things like that. Mm -hmm. I remember when I spent my time in the Archdiocese of Chicago, our Catholic newspaper was in, it was trilingual. It was English, Spanish, and Polish. Oh, in Polish. And so it was uh, always fascinating to see that we had, within our development office on staff, we had guys who could speak Spanish and Polish and English mm. um, there to help raise funds for the, the Archbishop, sure. for the Cardinal. So it's just uh, it's just always interesting to see those things and to hear those things. But um, Yeah. This past weekend, I was with our Vietnamese parish, St. Joseph's, for Vietnamese New Year, for Tet. So we had Mass for... Tet, they probably had six or seven hundred people. I mean, that church was just packed to the gills. The entryway, the side chapel, all the wow. seats, everything. I mean, it was packed to the wow. gills. And so, um, you know, I don't speak Vietnamese. So, um, Father Zui helped me learn the four words to be able to say Happy New Year uh, in Vietnamese. But um, when I go to that, Mass, and I've done this also in Chukis, hmm. um, at the Mass in Chukis, uh, I'll have the priest just translate what I'm saying. So I'll preach the homily, okay. a shorter homily, because he's going to then translate it so it's, you know, twice as long as whatever I say. <clears throat> and so that way they're still able to hear from me, but in a language they can understand. So Now, when you say the Eucharistic prayer, so when you, so for example, when you were just at St. Joseph's, were you the uh, main celebrant? Celebrant, right. And so did you have it, were you saying the Eucharistic prayer in? No. Vietnam? Okay, it was all in English then. No. Okay. Now, you know, the Eucharistic prayer of Mass in parishes that have more than one priest already experienced this. And anytime you see us con-celebrating, a priest's con-celebrating Mass together, you see that different priests will take different parts of the Eucharistic prayer. And so when I'm at Mass, for example, at our Vietnamese parish, uh, Father Dovan will take those parts that he would normally take, but in Vietnamese. Yep. Yeah. And my yeah. parts are in English, and so they follow. I always up. wonder about that because, um, you know, we, we just, uh, uh, when was it, Friday? 
Friday, we I watched UConn celebrate a mass with uh, Father Castle and Father O'Brien out at uh, Our Lady of Grace Retreat Center oh, right. in Stillwater. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, you know, there are certain points where the priest, and I don't know if there's certain points in the Eucharistic prayer where the, where the uh, priests who are con-celebrating are supposed to speak out loud. It's probably just one of those human things where some guys just have a louder whisper or a more shallow whisper. Because sometimes I'm like, so are they supposed to be speaking out loud right now? Mm-hmm. And then like sometimes they, you know, and sometimes they're supposed to whisper or say it under their breath, right. but it's probably one of those things where everybody's joining in. It's funny because um, we have the, or not funny, but interesting, but we got our oldest son, Joseph, we got him the Magnificat, which is a Magnificat for kids. And if you don't, if you've never seen a Magnificat, what it is, is it's the readings and the order of the mass. So you can literally read along with everything that's said during mass. Mm-hmm. You know, within, you know, 5% or something, like, or 95% of what's there, you know, um, you can pretty much read in that text. And so we got him a Magnificat, and and it's great, but the um, I've wondered this, and so there's a question I have for you, but but Joseph will read, he'll read uh, the Eucharistic prayer out loud. So for a while there, <laughs> he was he was reading the Eucharistic prayer out loud while the priest was saying it. And so I, I told him, you know, as a father who's like, well, we don't want to be, you know, loud during Mass, I said... I said, you can't do that. So I told my son, I said, I said, you know, you know, you can read it, but you can't, you know, say it out loud. So it begs the question, can we as lay people read the Eucharistic prayer out loud from the pew? Or is that is that something that, you know, is frowned upon or something we can or can't do? Well, first, I want to do a commercial for the Magnificat, (laughs) because as a bishop, uh, as a pastor, uh, I would love anybody who can to have a subscription to the Magnificat oh, because sure. it really is one of the excellent resources that we have yeah. for lay Catholics. Um, I think it's what forty something dollars, fifty something dollars a year for the yes. subscription. Yeah, approximately. And yep. you you receive a monthly uh, booklet, and the booklet contains all of the prayers and readings for all the masses, but it also contains lots of little exposés about art, writings from the saints, uh, reflections for daily Mass. I, I myself have a subscription to it. We encourage people to bring their old uh, uh, copies of the Magnificat to the chancery or, or to their parish priest so that we can take them to the jail. Because we take the, the old... That's a really good point, actually. Yeah, we recycle them at the, the jail because... If you're behind bars, you don't care when it was published. You don't care that it's not this month's Magnificat. Totally. Totally. Uh, You're just wanting something to help you get through the the experience of being in jail. And I always feel odd when I take my Magnificat and I'm done with it for the month. And I'm like, do I just throw this in the trash? It's such a holy item and it has such beautiful artwork in it that you don't, you would feel odd to to throw it in the trash. I mean, we're like, I've recycled them. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, and the Magnificat is something that they do that is also very good. If you have children who enjoy books or or are less distracted if they have something in their hands, that's a great uh, tool as well. Magnificat also creates a Lenten companion and an Advent companion. So those are special little additions that come out for Lenten Mm. and Advent. But um, to your question, you know, for little children who are learning things, sure, yeah, it's perfectly fine. I mean, that may be the kind of thing that helps him see his vocation. Sure, you know, yeah. who knows? He may, uh, if Joseph in the future becomes a priest, 
and remembers back to when he was praying that and how that somehow helped him to see, you know, I might like to do this. Uh, that would be an amazing thing. Now, uh, the, the laity at Mass don't typically pray the Eucharistic prayer out loud, and that's reserved for concelebrants. Right. And even the concelebrants don't pray all of the parts of the Eucharistic prayer out loud. And what parts they do pray, they whisper them. So when you see us at, at you know, with all of our priests at Chrism Mass or at ordinations, in the words of institution, there's two little paragraphs that all the priests who are concelebrating say together with the, the celebrant making the same action that he's making, the same gesture over the bread and wine mm -hmm. or, or referring to it. And um, so that's where you run into a lot of, you know, some men say it louder and some quieter. Sure. And so it can sound like a low murmur up there. Yeah, sometimes, yeah. <clears throat> but when it's just one or two, typically you're not going to necessarily hear them. But when, when they're saying a singular part... So we'll usually have like four concelebrants at an ordination. We'll step forward and say a part. We try to have them mic'd. Mm -hmm. You know, we try to have a microphone so they can readily be heard because that's what you want. But it does often happen that in a case of a concelebration, the concelebrants might not be mic'd. Right. And if they're not mic'd and there's not a mic on the altar, then you may only hear a faint echo <laughs> out in the pews of, of what they're saying. Uh, but yeah, so I think it's wonderful for kids to, to mm -hmm. have such yeah. a, to recognize, oh, I know this. Oh, I know where this is in the book. Oh, I can read this while they're saying it. That's awesome. Uh, it would become distracting for people if they say it out loud. And so you might say, you, sh you should whisper it. You know, something like well, that. And I remember as a kid, you know, you, whatever, whatever hymnal we had at our parish, you know, there's all sorts <laughs> of hymnals out there. But, you know, you'd often, you'd often find, you know, for, for a while there, it seemed like at my home parish when I was small but able to read, you know, they wouldn't necessarily put up the numbers for the readings. It was mm -hmm. just, you know, whatever hymns were being sung from the book. And so, you know, I would, you know, you'd dig and you'd find them and then you'd, you'd be like, well, why is it, it's wrong? Oh, it's, we're on B cycle this year. I'm not on A cycle. I'm on A cycle, you know, or whatever. And then by the time then you're halfway through the first reading or whatever, and then you're trying to find your way through and then, and then they don't read the brackets or, you know, and you're a kid. And so you're fine. And so Magnificent, I mean, just watching my son engage with it, it's like, oh my gosh, what a great resource just because yeah. he can just open it up. He reads it. It's to not, the day. Yeah, it's just, not just coloring book or something right. like that, or, or here, you know, we've got little Jesus books. I mean, we literally have a special bag at our house with the cross. <laughs> it had, probably has a monstrance on it and a cup and, you know, and it has the mass books that are mass appropriate. That's the, the mass go bag. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's right. Oh yeah. And so, uh, so, you know, so we've got all that, but anyway, so it's always just, it's always interesting to, to think about all those things and, um, to think about, how we engage with the mass, how it can be different so many other places. But, mm -hmm. um, hopefully, hopefully this Lent, everyone is returning to mass. Yeah, and, you know, it, it, um, it helps us to get into why. So I was saying to the kids this morning at, at St. Catherine's that in the Eucharist are two gifts and two miracles. The two gifts are that Jesus gives himself to us mm -hmm. 
in his body and his blood in the Eucharist that we can receive in Holy Communion. And the miracle is that Jesus gives himself, (laughs) that the bread and the wine, Jesus has given his church away to cause bread and wine to change in their substance to become his flesh and blood for us to eat and drink so that we can become divine, so that we can become him, more like him. And then those are also the two miracles. The the miracle is that this happens right in front of us. You know, people will fly off to Medjugorje or wherever they hear that there's miracles happening. Just go to Mass. (laughs) The greatest miracle that can happen is happening right there on the altar. And the second miracle is that we believe it. Mm -hmm. We so easily take for granted the gift of faith. If you bring someone who's not Catholic with you, who doesn't have Eucharistic faith with you to Mass, that helps to highlight the difference of the gift that you've received. Because they'll be there. They may have an appreciation of it. They may, they may be on their way to becoming Catholic, for example, so they have an interest in it. But maybe they don't yet have that belief. They don't yet believe that What's happening on that altar is a miracle. The bread and wine are becoming the body and blood of Jesus. But you do. And the difference between those two uh, beliefs is a gift. Uh, We can strengthen our faith. So, you know, if a person believes what we believe about the Eucharist, but then just comes sporadically to the Eucharist because they just really don't, feel like going or something. Mm-hmm. That's an indication that they don't actually believe what we believe. Yep. You know, the the, yep. <clears throat> the scripture that says that um, uh, no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. Even the devils believe it, but they don't do anything about it because they, yeah. they don't really get it. Uh, similarly, if you know that at Mass, God is going to visit you in the most intimate way possible through giving you the body and blood of his Son who died for our salvation, and that in that moment of encounter and in that moment of intimacy and of love, you can renew that every day if you want. You can go to Mass every day. Uh, To know all of that and to realize that you believe it is to be inspired to do it because <laughs> otherwise you're not yet getting it. You're not yet getting the... Mm-hmm. Uh, it's possible to know that the church teaches it, but that's different than you yourself finally encountering the Lord in it in such a degree that you say, I have to give him my life. He's mm-hmm. giving me himself every time I receive communion. I have to give him my life. What can I do to make a return? That's even biblical, right? How can I make a return to the Lord for all the goodness that he has given to me? The cup of salvation I will raise up, and I will call on the name of the Lord. That's the logical response for any human person who gets what happens, who gets that Jesus is doing this for me. The logical response is my life. How does, how does one, so, so many of us go to mass and I mean, you know, your example is great because it's the person who maybe has never been to mass before at all. 
is trying to figure out what's going on. You know, there's motions, you know, <laughs> you know, the, uh, as I've heard before, Catholic calisthenics, right. Yep. You know, so like it's, it's, you know, it's kneel, kneeling, sitting, standing, you know, and I haven't gone to many, many, many other churches. So my assumption is that I guess most of the time you're not moving around and we're moving around a lot compared mm-hmm. to most. And so how does one have an encounter is my question. How do, if, if I go to mass and I'm there and I'm participating and maybe I'm going, but I want that encounter experience, is it, is it, is it my orientation? Do I need to do something? How do I approach that experience so that that encounter can happen? Um, because I think your point is really strong in that, like, you can know these things, mm-hmm. uh, but do you know him? And so um, how does one take, take that experience to sort of maybe the next step? I think that, uh, I'll say a couple of things. So one thing I would say is if you're in a room full of people and you want to meet one of them and you want to have an encounter with them, that is to say a deeper than just, isn't it a sunny day today conversation? How would you do that? What stance would you take that would increase the odds Mm. that you would meet them, have this kind of encounter. Because that's what we're dealing with at the Mass. We're not dealing with with Father. We're not, de- I mean, we are, but we're dealing with the Lord Jesus Christ who himself is present there and wanting to have this encounter with us. He wants this encounter with us. So, for example, you would, you would thirst for it. You would desire it. You would open yourself. You would be attentive. You would be looking for ways to get into the conversation with them. You would be looking for, how can I get close to them? Uh, The woman with the hemorrhage was trying to figure out in this big crowd, how can I touch his cloak without anyone seeing me? That's right. So those are natural human things that everyone would know how to do simply based on what if it was just somebody, some person that I wanted to meet. Well, it is some person (laughs) that we want to meet. It is the divine person of Jesus Christ. Um, another thing that, a, that people could do is to get some kind of a resource that has the prayers of mass in it. Uh, I certainly know this because I spent, you know, 25 years of my life as a layman growing up in a Catholic family in a Catholic church. Uh, but I, I don't recall that in, in those years that I ever really read the the prayers. I didn't sit down in a quiet place and read through them and think through, what, what do these things mean? So a person could either get a missalette or online, for example, you could find um, in the United States Catholic Bishops website, there's a page that's called, what's it called? The Mass Structure and Meaning. Uh, that kind of a resource or the Magnificat, or anything like that that has the Mass prayers in it, to sit, this would be a great thing to do during Lent, right? We we want to increase our prayer. Sit with the Mass readings and let Jesus read them to you. You know, imagine having a conversation with Jesus about these things. What do they mean? Uh, All of them contain... All of the Eucharistic prayers, for example, contain what are called the the uh, institution prayers. 
And those are the words that Jesus said at the Last Supper as he prayed the blessing over the bread and over the wine, but this time causing what were normal uh, prayers and gestures during the uh, Seder, the Sabbath, the um, Passover meal, this time causing them to become his flesh and blood so that he could give them to his disciples to eat and drink on the night before he's going to die for them. Well, that's what we're doing at Mass. We're encountering him precisely in that uh, mystery, in that whole mystery, the, the what we call the passion of the Lord, the suffering, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. When is the exact moment when that miracle takes place on the altar during the Mass? Yeah. Now, it's a it's a good question. I'm not. I'm not. I know. I'm not getting <laughs> know exactly away from where the you're question. going with this. Yeah. <laughs> but I wouldn't want people to get too hung up on it just because it's sort of like, when is the moment, the, the best moment of love in the marriage? Well, yes, there are some moments that are <laughs> higher than others, but we want to have the whole marriage, right? Um, the words of institution that the priest prays over the bread and then over the wine are the moments when that bread becomes the body of Christ and when the wine becomes the blood of Christ. So those are the moments. And they have a special significance within the, the Mass, and you see the, the celebration heightened there. Usually, for example, bells are rung. If they're using incense in a very solemn way, they'll um, incense the sacrament as the priest raises it. The priest genuflects before it because now it is something different. Now it is sacred. Uh, now that, that which you could handle in a casual way before, you no longer can. Um, now that which you buy in plastic containers, you know, in boxes with cellophane wrappers yeah. and so forth, Wine that you buy in ordinary glass and bottles. That's, and that's how the hosts come. They come right. in packages. Yeah, yeah. Uh, 500 or 1,000 to the package. <laughs> now you can no longer treat them that way. Now the right. vessels are required to be gold or gold-plated or some precious metal uh, and so forth. So we surround them with reverence that is due to what has happened, the change that has happened. I've used this analogy with, with uh, groups before. Even to talk about the, to make the analogy with the act of sexual uh, intercourse between spouses. Hmm. Why is sex uh, not, why, why does the church teach that sex is reserved for marriage only? And uh, if, it, if at Mass you saw me take the hosts out of the tabernacle and spray cheese whiz on them and eat them, Ugh. it would completely cause the church to catch on fire. I mean, everybody's hair would catch on fire in the whole place. And boy, there would be a riot, as there should be, because right. I would be taking something that was sacred yep. and using it as if it were merely good. I would be taking sacred hosts, which used to be simply bread hosts, but now no longer are. But I would be treating them as if they still were. Well, when we talk about the gift of sexual uh, relations between a husband and a spouse, we've left the realm of good things. So 
in general in life, things are either bad or they're good, and you just have those two choices. And we certainly don't believe that sex is bad, but we also don't believe that sex is good. We believe that sex is sacred. In the life of of the Christian, we have more than just bad or good categories. We have a third category, and the third category is those things that are higher than good, they're sacred, and because they're sacred, we reserve them for a particular use, and we don't use them for anything except that use. Sex is sacred in marriage. That's why God invented it. Mm -hmm. He invented it when he created Eve. Because only then did we have the possibility of sexual intercourse. Um, and sex is intended by God for marriage, where it is a sacred act between the husband and the wife as they renew their marriage covenant. Uh, and because of that, it's reserved for marriage. And to use it anywhere outside of marriage is to use something that is sacred as if it were merely good. Mm-hmm. And even to corrupt it further than that in the pornographic culture that we live sure. in now, uh, taking something that is sacred and using it for even evil ends. So that bread and wine, you know, is consecrated or, you know, has gone through consecration and it is now sacred. Um, but it still may look or even taste mm -hmm. like bread and wine. Yeah, the great song from... from uh, Thomas Aquinas, seeing, touching, tasting, is that the Tantamergo ride or Solitaris? I always get confused which one it is. But uh, he has a, a phrase in there where he says, seeing, touching, tasting are in thee deceived. How says trusty hearing that can be believed? And so what we're talking about is seeing bread, touching bread, tasting bread when I receive the Eucharist. I see what looks like bread, I touch what feels like bread, I eat what tastes like bread, but those senses are deceived in the Eucharist because what used to be bread has now become the body of Christ. And I believe that because Jesus said so. So my hearing is the one thing that's not deceived. Jesus said, I give you my flesh and my blood, I believe it because he said it. So my hearing is not deceived, even though my seeing, touching, and tasting are deceived. Um, the church uses a, a theologic, a logic about God, a theologic, a theology, to talk about what happens to the Eucharistic elements, the bread and the wine. And what the church talks about there is something called transubstantiation. Now, it's important that we understand that when we use the term transubstantiation, we don't describe everything that's happening in that mystery. Right. Because we cannot describe everything that's happening in that mystery. It's, it would be the same as saying, I can say God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that's all that needs to be said. <laughs> That's not even a beginning. That's right. But yeah, and then you have some bad analogies, you know, over the years of, of ice, water, vapor. <laughs> I don't know. Like, but what just, we're doing when what we're saying, and the reason why we even try to describe what God is doing in the Eucharist mm -hmm. is to help ourselves. That's right. And so we understand from philosophers 
that matter, things that are material, are made up of accident and substance. Uh, if we say, what is this, this thing that I, my hands are on? Mm-hmm. Someone could say, that's a table, but someone could also say, that's wood. And they would both be correct. The table, the saying that it's a table, describes the accidents. This particular set of wood is organized in a way that makes it useful as a table. That's the accident. That's what it looks like. Our mind sees the accident and says, oh, that's a table. But the table is made of a substance, and this particular table is made of the substance of wood. And so our mind might not immediately recognize that because it's so contained, it's so focused on the accident. It's a table. But then it would say, well, yeah, yeah, that's the substance. But what it is is a table. The same is true of the bread. The bread has accident and substance. The accident is whatever the shape is and the color and all of that, the host. The substance is bread. What God accomplishes is a change in the substance during the Mass so that the substance is no longer bread, but is the body of Christ under the accidents of bread, under the appearance of bread, because otherwise we couldn't consume it. Mm. God is so... Naturally, he knows us, he made us, but he's so deferential to us. He, he's so wanting to give us uh, the flesh and blood of our Savior, of his Son, that he does it in a way that we can take in, because otherwise we couldn't take it in. The first Christians were accused of cannibalism because people misunderstood what was happening when the Christians said, we eat the, the body and blood of Jesus Christ. Even Jesus was accused of cannibalism. That's right. In in John chapter 6, the people left him. This guy's lost his mind. <clears throat> so, so that's what the church uses to help us in our poor mm-hmm. uh, condition to try to grasp what is happening. Yeah. I think that's great. All that information is great to reflect on as... We're in the mass. I think it's a great reminder to think about some of those things. Um, yeah, as we go through, as we go through Lent, with many people hopefully coming back to mass or or spending more time in mass, um, we would hope that they they take time to process some of those things and to contemplate what's really going on to to hopefully create real encounter with our Lord. Yes, yes. To to think about the person behind the accident, <clears throat> behind the accidents who wants to be in an intimate relationship with you Mm -hmm. and is willing to give you his flesh and blood to eat to make it happen. Absolutely. Well, thank you for joining us this week on Tulsa Time. My name's Derek Lissy, and we hope that you have a great rest of your week.